Hello and welcome to the Socialist Rifle Association podcast. I'm your host, Faye. And your co-host, Austin. So it's been a little bit of a dumb news cycle the past couple weeks. So the main news story recently was Trump's State of the Union address, which was awful, uh, as expected. Who cares? Who even cares what he has to say about anything? It was interesting that he bothered to take the time to say that America will never be a socialist country. But uh, I think that's, as many people have pointed out, pretty good evidence that socialism is enough of a threat that he feels the need to. Yeah, absolutely. But of course, the dumbest thing about the State of the Union was Nancy Pelosi and everything surrounding her participation in it. Yeah. You know, just really, really committing to the highest form of civil disobedience, which was genuinely clapping and everyone completely misinterpreting it as her being sarcastic to Trump. There's already merch on Etsy. Uh, You can get a throw pillow with Nancy Pelosi doing her clap. You can get little political pin on buttons. You can get a blanket with Nancy Pelosi on it. Oh my God. You know, if you're insane. Hashtag resistance. Oh my God. It's it's like she's some kind of guerrilla fighter. It's so crazy. I'm so proud to have her fighting for my rights every day. She's going to do Che Guevara proud at this rate. (laughs) I feel like this is such a, a perfect picture of the kind of credit that Pelosi and people like her want to give themselves for things. She was she was genuinely clapping. She she thought like, oh, that was actually a nice thing that he said, and I and I wanted to encourage him. It does it doesn't matter. Like no one no one who who stands for Pelosi cares at all that that it that it was genuine. They want to give her credit for being so so subversive and so so dangerous and edgy, and and it's it's absolutely absurd. And she really is so hostile towards any progressive or socialist ideals of any kind. She opposes Trump in a partisan way, but when it comes to the bones of his policy, when it comes to the bones of American imperial ideology, she really doesn't give a shit. One of the other things to come out of this is Pelosi totally slagged off Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Someone asked her about the Green New Deal. Pelosi responded, it will be one of several or maybe many suggestions that we receive the green dream or whatever they call it yeah like she she doesn't take actual progressive agendas she doesn't take them seriously at all she and democrats like her hold very strong in the notion that the democratic establishment and the liberal establishment will will hold fast and and it has no chance of changing without their without their say so What it fundamentally comes down to is that the Democratic Party, or at least the establishment wing of it that makes up about 80% of its elected officials and party apparatchiks, the Democratic Party does not care about actual justice or actual progress. What they care about is the aesthetics of progress, the Mm. aesthetics of social justice. They want to have a representative proportion of Congress be people of color, to be women, to be LGBTQ, which is great. But having those people in Congress does not necessarily translate to those groups actually receiving justice in the real world, in the actual, you know, in their material lives. They want the aesthetics of a equal and fair and just society. Mm. But when it comes to actually Mm -hmm. implementing policies that would make that happen, 
well, then they start questioning the cost. Certainly a hundred millionaire like Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to pay a 70% income tax rate. And that's the, that's the amazing thing is that when faced with actual, with, with actual action, with actual worker action, like the worker actions that ended the, the government shutdown, while she had spent weeks just glowering at Trump over having over having the government shut down, like, yeah, thank you. That that absolutely did it. Thank you so much for your help. Like, no credit was given to the worker to the I believe it was the uh, the flight attendants union. The the um, the flight attendants unions went on strike, but it was the air traffic controllers who started calling in sick. Right, right. The air traffic controllers who and and uh, a bunch of other airline people coordinated massive worker action and the shutdown like broke in in an incredibly short amount of time and yet every liberal news outlet just couldn't wait to give Nancy Pelosi pretty much sole credit for that. It's like congratulations, you didn't blink. You did the bare minimum that is required of you to be a competent politician. Well yeah. done. And you're absolutely right. They, it, It's because they want the optics. It's because they want to look like they're doing something with all these like photo ops of them glowering at each other and saying mean things to each other and be like, oh, wow, look look at what she said. It's so crazy. They, they have to focus on the most shallow, the most shallow form of action. What they're doing is they're accumulating social capital in the hopes that it can be exchanged for political capital. They want to embarrass their opposition enough that their viewpoint will be taken more seriously, but their viewpoint is still the same, you know, staid, conservative, lukewarm social liberalism without any idea of the actual struggles that people are going through that might actually encourage them to pursue radical change. Yeah, and that and it reinforces this like pretty insidious this pretty insidious notion that we as consumers, as voters, have actual political power in the current system. Because we don't. We have precious little. And this appeals to our moral sensibility and to embarrassing the opposition and stuff like that. It banks on us believing that, like, oh, well, if all of us believe that he's a piece of shit, then, you know, then then we can actually do something about it. And the frustrating thing is that we... we really can't do very much about it. I mean, we've we've all collectively been mad about him being president for a very <laughs> long time now, and it's resulted in almost nothing. Yeah, you get the situation where all real political action is subsumed behind this basically facade of representation, the representation of justice rather than its actual existence. As Martin Luther King Jr. put it, True peace is not merely the absence of tension, it is the presence of justice. The Democrats seek a world without tension, but justice is the last thing on their agenda. Hmm. Speaking of Democrats and a complete abandonment of justice, currently the great Commonwealth of Virginia is undergoing a rather <laughs> interesting situation for top Virginia politicians are currently embroiled in ridiculous scandals. <laughs> Scandal number one, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam was accused of being present in a yearbook photo. And in that photo, of course, there was a man in blackface and a man in, in uh, clan robes. Now, 
at first, Northam said, oh, yes, I'm so sorry. I was in that photo. It was so wrong of me. And it was, you know, it was so awful. And I apologize for my misconduct. Then he backtracked a few days later and said, no, actually, I wasn't in that photo. But in 1984, I did wear blackface (laughs) to dress up as Michael Jackson at a dance. (laughs) He had to confess to something. He's like, well, as long as I have your attention, I I did as something else that was racist. (laughs) You know, just as, as long as you guys are paying attention to me. Shortly afterwards, his lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, criticized him and called him out. And a day later was credibly accused of sexual assault by one of his former colleagues. Then, several days later, completely unprovoked, Attorney General Mark Herring also admitted to wearing blackface in the 80s, wearing blackface and wigs to go to a party. <laughs> they okay, to impersonate rappers. They they can't they can't be asking people about this. Like this is like Oh, hey, how's it? I just wore blackface in the 80s. I, I just did it. <laughs> like, they just, I they, have they, to talk about it. They can't help themselves. <laughs> like An interviewer is just, just, just like, hey, thanks for sitting down with me. And they're like, yeah, I just, I just smeared it all over my face. I just did it. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> it, it, uh, it actually reminds me of um, the recent controversy with uh, Liam Neeson. So back in, I can't remember when exactly, some... 40-some years ago, one of Liam Neeson's uh, friends was was sexually assaulted. So he had some kind of club, some kind of like billy club or something like that, and he kept going into predominantly black neighborhoods and hoping that he would get jumped or something like that, something to provoke some kind of action where he could uh, kill whoever, you know, whatever black person attacked him. He He actually asked his friend the first thing that he asked her was what race was he and yeah. when she said black yeah he picked up a club and went to a black neighborhood Pretty first of all why is that the first question <laughs> that comes to your mind and second why did you stop there and yeah. not ask for more descriptors yeah but it's 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 a kind of interesting problem because he he was very racist 40 years ago that's essentially what what he admitted and I don't know that anyone really can say that they weren't racist even like 20 or 30 years ago. Like mo- most white people really can't admit that because racism was so baked into, into our rhetoric about, about inner cities, about, you know, the jokes that we would tell, the, like when we would talk about gangs, like when we would talk about just about anything, we were talking about, about a racist lens over over social issues, you know, the, the administrations that we are peopled by are often causing. So uh, I think that it was kind of interesting to have someone, th- this, uh, this kind of movement that's happening right now of people bringing up these like problematic things from their past, from their past. It's like almost a good thing. It's, it's almost like a, like no one's uncovering it for them you know no one's calling them out on it well like some sometimes people are but like in Liam Neeson's case like he brought it up himself he was like he was like yeah this is an awful thing that I did you know and I feel really bad about it and I channeled some of that in this movie that's coming out that's kind of about that's about revenge so I don't know so I'm kind of conflicted on that one 
I think that it's a good thing for white people to admit their racism. Absolutely. And to admit that they have or had problematic views as long as they are working to change those views and perhaps to pursue restorative justice if they ever wronged someone for that. My main concern is that this sort of thing, if it becomes common, could become a shield for people who are genuinely racist to be able to just openly admit the racist things they've done and normalize them and not face repercussions for them because they just say, oh, well, I'm just admitting. I'm just admitting to my fault. So, yes, it was very wrong of me. But also, I think I should be allowed to say the N-word. And that, that's what I'm worried about happening, more or less. If nothing else, older politicians bringing up the fact that they wore blackface if nothing else, that's a good way to clear out all of the old white dudes from the Democratic Party <laughs> and replace them with younger people. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think it, it ties in nicely to your earlier point about optics. You know, they want to be able to say, like, look, I, I, I confess to that. I, I, admitted, I admitted that that was wrong, you know, but look, we, we've, hired, we've hired more women. We've hired more people of color and stuff like that. They're, they're counting on so many things to... And I, and I think you're assessing it correctly, that they're counting on so many things to insulate them from blame for the actual policies that they endorse. They want to, it's, it's the epitome of, the, of the, the democratic agenda to look like the friend of progressives and of leftists and people who actually want to change this country for the better. They want to look like your friend, but they don't want you to look at their actual policy decisions. I think that Kamala Harris is an excellent example of this, where even she's recently said, like, yeah, I don't agree with with all of the things that I that I endorsed when I was a I believe she was a state prosecutor. Yeah, she was the um, L.A. County prosecutor. Yeah. Yeah. Like she's like, I don't agree with everything that we did. I was like, well, you know, I sure would hope not. But. Recently, there was some story about about her sneaking into some insurance it was fundraising. She, she she snuck in the back door of uh, of an Aetna conference to yeah. give a speech without telling anyone. Yeah, <laughs> she she's saying things like, "Yeah, no, I am a I am a progressive. I don't agree with everything that I that I used to believe, but who does? And and that should just about insulate me from criticism. Now I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm I'm going to to play favorites with the insurance." industry while also verbally advocating for medicare for all anyone in, in who endorses her is absolutely preparing to get to just have her turn right around and bite them on the neck can i also just say for the record that kamala harris is a transphobe who put a trans woman who did legitimately commit a crime she sent a trans woman to jail her name by the way mm-hmm. is michelle lale norsworthy and she was placed in the male prison after that Jesus. trans woman was then raped in the male prison, she requested that she receive genital reassignment surgeries, and Kamala Harris's office denied that request. Harris has tried to place the blame for that decision on her staffers, but ultimately it would have had to cross her desk, and she would have had to approve it. Wow. So other trans people can support who they're going to support, but I think that it's worth noting her record on trans rights in the past. And 
A decision like that probably reflects deeper views about her perceptions of what womanhood actually is and deeper views about trans people. You know, she might say progressive things about transgender rights now, but I don't necessarily think that should be trusted. Definitely not. She's a perfect embodiment of the the cruelty and the heartlessness that both sides of the aisle really, really want to enact on those who've committed crimes. Because because so much of that legitimizes the, the prison industrial complex, the insane things that they're that they're expected to do the revenue that they get from private prisons it the the more that they can get the public to dehumanize them and the more that they can dehumanize those people with their policies and with the things that kamala harris has done the more legitimate actual existing current day slavery seems for for these people never forget that the 13th amendment allows slavery as punishment for a crime. So many liberals like saying things like, well, yeah, we, we, ha- we had to reform the, the Constitution because it used to allow slavery. It used to allow more explicit out in the open slavery, but you can just still do that if you own a prison. It used to allow slavery. I mean, it still does, but it used to as well. Yeah, it used to as well. <laughs> it was also very bad in the past. Now, we've been criticizing Democrats a lot, And a lot of that is because they are the people immediately to our right. Obviously, Republicans are terrible as well. But if you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't need to be told that. I just think it's worth stating for the record that as shitty as the Democrats are, there are people who are significantly worse. For instance, going back to the Virginia story, the Republicans were yucking it up at the misfortune of the Democrats for a while, railing about these politicians wearing blackface as if do you honestly believe that a republican state senator from virginia has never worn blackface before oh my god i mean it's basically guaranteed i guarantee at least one of them did it last year uh, yeah <laughs> yeah or or else the, or else one of their kids did it or something yeah <laughs> and indeed shortly after the democratic scandals were revealed uh, one of the members of the virginia state senate on the republican side was revealed to have been the editor of a college yearbook which contained multiple pictures of people in blackface as well as multiple racial slurs that state senator is now also in hot water I think it's interesting that now basically the entire line of succession for the Virginia governorship is embroiled in scandal. And if they all go down, they'll probably have to have a special election or some special committee choose the next governor. But, you know, this is America and we believe in democracy. And that is why I declare that Lee Carter is the legitimate president, is the legitimate (laughs) president of the state of Virginia. Absolutely. The, the, the wishes of the people must be respected. <laughs> Any comrades in, in Virginia, start making signs. Start, start making signs, start making pins. Yeah, put, put them up, put them up wherever. Say, say that he, he is the next in line to the throne, the throne of Virginia. <laughs> now, of course, he's not the only person who's been declared president by a third party. Uh, things have been a bit tumultuous in Venezuela lately, things are going downhill fast. Uh, The United States and many of its allies are putting significant pressure on the Venezuelan government. In addition to sanctions, the president has 
encouraged American banks and international fund and international banking institutions to transfer control of Venezuela's state bank accounts to transfer those funds to the personal control of Juan Guaido. Right, and and Guaido has been very explicit about his uh, his willingness. He he's entertaining the idea of uh, get this of of opening Venezuela's oil reserves to foreign investment. Isn't oh, really isn't that crazy? I had to do a big think about why he would have wanted that and and why the U.S. would end up would end up backing him and and what kind of an what, you know, why, why are we so concerned about, about the human rights in Venezuela? That's so curious. You know, I think I, I think I remember hearing something from Mr. John Bolton about how, about how privatizing the oil reserves in Venezuela would be so good for the Venezuelan people and also American oil company st- you know, shareholders. Right, right. When you're looking at Latin Ameri- American countries, when you're trying to find ones where you know, current the current human rights situation is is at its absolute best. Just look at the places where the U.S. has has made deals. You know, just look at look at look at the places where where the U.S. has you know deposed uh, democratically elected governments and instituted you know dictators and stuff like that. It, it's it's right. by far the best. Replacing Allende with Pinochet in Chile. Replacing a democratic socialist with a man who had his political opponents raped by dogs. Yeah, yeah, and in all seriousness, this really is just. Same shit, different day, as as far as American foreign foreign policy is concerned. Like this is the the exact same imperialism that everyone in the government currently can absolutely get behind, and who they they either explicitly or silently endorse. No one currently in the House, except for AOC, hasn't really said anything. But no no one currently in the government is is talking about how how fucked up this is and of course they are already spinning narratives to justify military intervention um a talking head i don't recall who it doesn't matter recently said that hezbollah is suspected to be active in venezuela (laughs) hezbollah that that tiny organization on literally the other side of the planet they're active in venezuela yeah, I, let me. Get, what else uh, does Venezuela have? Nuclear weapons yeah, they, that are deployable in forty-five minutes. Yeah, they have weapons of mass destruction. Did they sink the Lusitania? <laughs> they sabotaged the Titanic. Oh, yeah. I, I heard the. I heard the. Um, heard that they had a race and they were they were at the front of the race throwing banana peels and oil slicks behind them to mess up all the other all the other racers. How dare they? Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and of course the. Uh, of course, the gears of war are already turning. Um, some of Guaido's supporters uh, somehow got a hold of a mortar, which they used to kill a chavista in northern Venezuela. They then uh, stoned the body, kicked it, and fled the scene before uh, police could arrive. Mm-hmm. Additionally, a uh, shipment of weapons from the United States was intercepted uh, a plane uh, landed with a crate with 19 assault rifles, over 100 magazines, telescopic sights, and communication equipment. Not the sort of stuff typically that you would see in a 
maybe a private arms deal, especially the communications equipment. Um, obviously, I doubt this will ever be traced directly back to the U.S. government, but I think it's interesting that American weapons are showing up on planes to Venezuela to unknown parties. Well, yeah, they they just want to they just want to make sure that the that the election that'll take place will be as legitimate as possible and as as protected as possible. You know, who knows what could happen if there aren't just tons of assault rifles in the opposition's hands. Absolutely. Now, of course, I'm not saying that things in Venezuela are perfect. Maduro is no great humanitarian. He is no perfect leader. Many people in his administration are proven to have stolen government funds, to have committed corruption. And certainly... Maduro's version of socialism is not what I would like to see enacted in the U.S. However, regardless of how crappy Maduro is, I guarantee that if Guaido takes power in Venezuela, things would only get worse for the Venezuelan people. You might see a few mostly white Venezuelans end up a little bit better off economically, but I can guarantee that things will only get worse for the Venezuelan poor, who are the main benefactors of the social programs that shop that uh, Hugo Chavez and Maduro have put in place. Yeah, that's that's the interesting thing about the political demographics in in Venezuela right now, where the the working class is almost entirely, almost unanimously in favor of Maduro's government. They've been appreciating the lengths that his government goes to to try to enact some amount of of protection. And it's interesting because the opposition is almost entirely funded by Venezuela's capitalists, by, by the, the most wealthy and the most affluent in Venezuela are by far the most interested in seeing Venezuela's government have a, re, a, a regime change. Absolutely. And U.S. news outlets may say that, oh, we must uphold democracy by unilaterally overthrowing Maduro's rule and putting Guaido in charge. But as leftists, we have to oppose imperialism by the U.S. against uh, smaller countries for the purpose of extracting their natural resources. Again, I don't think Maduro is great. I think that if a left-wing socialist party, if a left communist party rises up in opposition and they form workers' councils and they dismantle the government and there's, you know, anarchist communes, if that happens, great. But that's not happening. That doesn't exist. What's actually going on in Venezuela is a right-wing capitalist coup to overthrow a shitty but still socialist leader um, so that they can sell the company the uh, country's resources to the United States in return for kickbacks for the ruling class and upper middle class of Venezuela. I, I think it's also important to remember that nothing that was happening under Maduro's government uh, ever happened in a vacuum. We, we've, we've had sanctions against Venezuela for a long time. We've, we've been engaged in an economic war with them for quite a long time, trying to discourage the, their socialist government from functioning well. And so I, I think that I, I personally would be very interested in seeing what, what Maduro's government would be capable of without sanctions, without an economic war, without its capitalists freezing the economy and, and keeping 
keeping vital resources under lock and key and guarded by people with assault rifles. You can find pictures of it online. It's not it's not hard to connect the dots here. Absolutely. So, you know, you'll have to go all out supporting Maduro, but if nothing else, you should at least call out Western propaganda trying to instigate and trying to, you know, round up support for this illegal coup. So, coming back to United States and domestic issues, um, we'll turn now to Oregon. Currently, the Oregon legislature are planning to discuss Senate Bill 501. Senate Bill 501 is a regressive gun law that focuses on a number of frankly outlandish proposals for regulating guns in the state of Oregon. The main points are that it raises the minimum age for purchasing a gun to 21. Note this is already the minimum age federally to purchase a handgun. Now this would apply to long arms as well. The bill would lengthen the period of time needed for a background check to clear, which is ridiculous because the background checks happen almost instantaneously within about a minute. There's no reason for those to be delayed. In, in how quickly they happen. Absolutely. But the worst elements of it would be that the bill would require a permit to purchase a handgun. And the requirements for this permit would essentially be a replication of the existing federal restrictions on who is allowed to uh, purchase a firearm, but would also require a heavy fee and the completion of a firearm safety course. I don't have any problem with a safety course in theory, but adding additional fees on top of the already existing taxes and fees and the cost of running the background check itself, which is passed on to the customer, adding additional costs onto this only serves to restrict the working class's ability to purchase and bear firearms. Additionally, it would place restrictions on the number of guns that a person could buy in a single month. So if you, if you want to buy a hunting rifle and a shotgun, you have to wait a month separately to buy them for some reason. By far, the most ridiculous restriction that this law would put in place is that an individual would not be able to purchase more than 20 rounds of ammunition in a single month. 20 rounds? <laughs> that, that, that ain't enough for a range day, everybody. <laughs> no, 20 rounds is about enough for two, maybe three minutes, depending on what you're shooting. Now, it does say that ranges... Are exempted from this so you can buy your ammunition at the range first of all uh, as, again going back to the economic argument range ammunition is usually grossly overpriced typically 50% more than retail which is already more than what you can pay for it online but in addition to that it makes it essentially impossible for someone to shoot many antique or military surplus rifles which shoot rare and uncommon calibers that are not readily available at most ranges. For instance, uh, I own an M1 Garand. The M1 Garand fires a relatively popular cartridge, uh, the .30-06. However, the M1 Garand was designed for the ammunition available to the military in the 1930s and 40s, and that ammunition is loaded to lower pressures than modern .30-06. If I bought .30-06 at a range and fired it in my M1 Garand, I would break the gun. The op rod would bend, the bolt would get screwed up, the gas system wouldn't take it well. Mm -hmm. So essentially, if I lived in Oregon and I owned an M1 Garand, if this law passed, I would not be able to shoot my M1 Garand except for buying 20 rounds at a time, a single box at a time, online of the ammunition that it needs. Wow. 
to say nothing of people who own even more obscure guns. This essentially uh, would act as a ban on shooting many very popular firearms that are not avail that are not available in common calibers. Additionally, the ban would also ban quote large capacity magazines which accept more than five rounds of ammunition. Yeah, it's 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 interesting the the lack of of inclusion or care given to people who want to recreationally shoot because if that if that was enacted you know anywhere where we were we would have to plan range days and stuff like that like a year in advance (laughs) to say nothing of the effect it would have on self-defense five rounds is really really on the low end of what's considered sufficient for self-defense Five rounds, it's not uncommon for five rounds to be fired during a self-defense scenario. And again, going back to the cost factor, banning magazines that hold more than five rounds means that many guns, which only come with magazines that are more than five rounds, you will have to purchase custom magazines if they exist or permanently alter existing magazines in a typically expensive process or one that requires tools that many people don't have in order to make them comply with the five round limit. Again, this is essentially another tax on owning a firearm, essentially having to pay more to reduce the capability of your gun in order to not be deemed a felon for owning something that's been legal for centuries. All right, so let's say that I have a gun now after your very helpful uh, gun buying guide uh, from from last episode. Uh, how would I how would I go about storing that safely along with uh, ammunition and, and all that kind of stuff? Uh, It's important to store your guns safely for a number of reasons. You want to protect your guns from being stolen. If you have kids in your home, you want them to, you want to prevent them from getting access to your guns. In some states like California, it is a requirement that if there is a child in your house, the firearm must be secured in a way and a place where the child cannot reach it. I think that's actually a very good gun law. Gun owners do need to take responsibility for the safe storage of their firearms. So what does safe storage look like? Well, the obvious answer is a safe. So there are really two main categories of safes. The first is just a common valuables safe, what you would store important documents in or you know, treasured heirlooms or anything like that. Typically a relatively um, small safe that can be oftentimes in a house, it'll be sunk into the floor or in a wall, you probably have seen it in movies or some such. You can also get ones that can go under a desk or that can be, you know, just in a corner somewhere, bolted down to the ground to stop someone from just walking off with it. Um, These are suitable for storing handguns, but typically because they're rather small and cubic in shape, they're not really the right form factor to store a rifle. So the other alternative in terms of actual fire safes would be a full-size gun safe. These are typically massive steel structures which can hold 10 or more rifles and shotguns, typically with compartments for other things like pistols. These are typically not available to the average working class person because they can cost thousands and thousands of dollars. They can cost thousands of dollars to install. You need to have a house for them to be installed in because typically you won't have space for them in an apartment and even if you do have space your landlord will not approve and 
good luck hiding it from them. (laughs) So that's really not always a good option for working class people. So the alternative that is a bit more accessible is a gun cabinet. These are not as secure as a safe. Um, While a safe is typically very thick steel welded together or riveted or otherwise, you know, very strongly secured with a very strong uh, hardened steel bolt. While those safes are very secure, cabinets are a bit less so. Typically the steel is, you know, several millimeters thick. It has a more conventional lock, but it's not as secure. If someone breaks into your house and they really want your guns, and they're not afraid of making noise, they can go in there with a pry bar and a sledgehammer and they can get that cabinet open in about a minute. However, a gun cabinet will suffice to keep honest people out. It'll suffice to keep children out. It'll stop people from getting to your guns unless they want to go the full burglary route and just rip the thing open with heavy tools. Yeah, if, if, if you see, so it sounds like if you see your kid with a sledgehammer and a crowbar, you should probably start asking them, you know, like, what, what, are, you, what are you planning with that, little man? There are several brands of these on the market, I believe. Uh, one of the most popular is Stackon. There's a lot of them out there. Do your research, look up reviews. There's new manufacturers coming on the market all the time. So look for one that fits your needs. Um, Additionally, some have special features. There are quick access gun cabinets, which will typically be biometric or use a keypad, where essentially if you have a like a home defense gun, like a shotgun or something, and you want to keep that secure, but still have ready access to it if there's a home invasion or something, these will offer you a quicker way into your safe to retrieve your firearm. On the other hand, many people don't really trust electronic locks. They do fail, especially uh, at the lower end of the price range. Uh, Companies cheap out on the electronics they use. You know, they contract out the design to people who don't necessarily know what they're doing. Sometimes the physical design will be poor so that they can be bypassed by removing the lock and, you know, shorting something, although companies have gotten better about that recently. But it it is still a concern. Not everyone is comfortable with an electronic lock. But let's say you're really strapped for cash and you can't afford a gun cabinet either or you don't have the space for it. Well... There are still ways to keep your gun relatively secure. You have the option of things like cable locks or trigger locks. A cable lock is a device that uh, you can take your gun, open the action, run the cable through it, and then it locks into a padlock, essentially, with a hardened steel wire running through the cable, uh, which is cut resistance. And the purpose of this is essentially to lock the gun in an open position so that it cannot load a magazine or chamber around. So this won't protect your gun from being stolen, but it will stop a child from getting your gun and loading it and hurting someone. So while it's not ideal for protecting you from theft, it's still better than nothing. And speaking of that, the Socialist Rifle Association is planning a series of gun lock clinics in cities across the nation. Uh, We're going to be tabling at events and handing out free cable locks to anyone who needs one. Anyone who has a gun that they feel is inadequately secured, anyone who's maybe considering buying a firearm but isn't quite sure yet, it doesn't matter. We'll give you a cable lock along with an informational brochure telling you why you should use one and how. We'll be announcing on Twitter most likely when and where these events will be held. Um, We're planning one in Los Angeles here, currently working out venue, 
but uh, we should be hosting one in a few weeks. And uh, you can check out the LA underscore socialist RA Twitter account to see when that's going to be coming up. All right. I feel pretty informed about that. I'm glad to hear you say so. (laughs) All right, folks, we're going to take a break for an intermission. The music you're going to be listening to is another track from transgender artist Ren. A nice little ambient piece. When we come back, we're going to be speaking to the president of the SRA, Alex Yumba, who will be talking with us about Native American issues and the matter of reparations and what that might look like under a socialist system. So in the meantime, uh, sit back and enjoy the ambiance.
Hi folks, welcome back to the show. Uh, we're joined today by the president of the SRA and former podcast host, Alex Yumva. Well, hello. Happy to have you back on the show. Feel familiar? Oh, a little bit. I've got audio waves in front of my eyes again, standing up this time so that I have less phlegm as many listeners used to be aware of my various vocal inflections that happen when you're hunched over a computer and microphone for hours on end. <laughs> well, I hope that won't be an issue this time. So today we brought you on to talk about a subject that we haven't really dived into uh, before, which is the subject of Native American rights and reparations and justice for the various tribes which were colonized by European settlers and how we as leftists can look for ways to uh, re-empower these communities and provide some form of justice for the horrific crimes that have been committed against them. So you, you are part Native American, correct? Yes, I am Cherokee and Choctaw, uh, strongest amount being Cherokee, and I affiliate with the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. So what can you tell me about what that means? What does it mean to affiliate with a tribe in the United States? So, unfortunately, like everything to do with Native and Indigenous peoples in the Americas, um, it's different for every single tribe, nation, or uh, jurisdiction. There's a lot of different things that it can mean, uh, depending upon a lot of different factors. For the Cherokee Nation, this is something that is primarily based upon the Dawes roles. So in order to be a citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, uh, you have to be able to trace your ancestry back through the ages to the Dawes roles, which were a system set up in the late 1800s during Reconstruction that basically land in the native territories. Oklahoma was not yet a state, and so it was just uh, termed Indian land and uh, various tribes that had been forcibly resettled there through the Trail of Tears and other uh, forcible resettlements were put in Oklahoma and basically allowed to be self-autonomous, that it was considered barren land and nobody really wanted to do anything with it. So the tribes more or less were able to handle their own business and affairs there. Uh, after the Civil War, as westward expansion continued, people began to settle more in the west. Kansas and Nebraska had been settled. Now Oklahoma was being settled. As part of this, there was an increased demand for land for white settlers that were coming in, uh, not only from the east coast, but also immigrant groups that were coming across from Europe. Uh, began settling in the West, this created more demand for land. Because Kansas and Nebraska had already been admitted as states, they had control over their jurisdictions, but Oklahoma was not yet a state, and so was still a federal territory, which gave the federal government full control over it. Because of this, the federal government came in to the various tribes that had been set up uh, in the Oklahoma Territory and basically told them, it's cool and all that you have this communal setup that you have the tribe owning most of the land and private property still exists, but is not what we would think of it uh, in the modern sense. But we're going to change this. So what the federal government did was they came in and basically said, OK, there's this many Cherokee. There's this many Choctaw. We're going to say everyone gets so many acres of land uh, that you need to have a farm. And now you have that plot of land. So come up, sign the Dawes Rule, saying that you get this anchorage in this area. And they divided all the territory up with that. Conveniently enough, 
uh, after they got done dividing it up, there was a lot of tribal land that didn't go to anyone, which the federal government then reappropriated and dispersed out to white settlers. So it was it was a tactic, obvious, uh, obviously, to just take more land. Uh, it was unfortunately a frequent thing in native history is that a treaty means nothing. A treaty will change within 50 years or if not less. Uh, sometimes they're being violated the moment the ink lifts off the paper. But that is how the Cherokee Nation determines citizenship is that you can trace your uh, heritage back to the Dawes Rolls, which unfortunately this also means that uh, there are quite a few Cherokee at the time that either were left out because this was the 1800s, there wasn't, you know, an internet-based digital repository of everyone living there. It was a very uh, haphazard, census-based sort of situation, and you're living out in the middle of nowhere uh, in quote-unquote unsettled territory. People got missed. Uh, some people refused to sign onto the Dawes Rolls because they didn't want the federal government having their name again for obvious reasons, given the reason that many of them were living there to begin with. So people were missed, people were refused. The Dawes Rolls are not imper or are not perfect documents. Some of them have degraded over the years, some of them have been lost. Only, you know, in the last 20 to 30 years have digital reproductions of these old documents started to be made and filed away in the National Archives and everything. It's not a perfect system. It is a better system, in my opinion, than blood quantums, which is what the Eastern Band of the Cherokee use, who are a separate entity uh, or separate recognized tribe under the federal government. And they use blood quantums to determine their citizenship in their uh, system. And that's why I say I affiliate, because unfortunately, my ancestry falls under one of these missed folks that the exact family history there is a little unclear as to whether or not people just didn't uh, sign up or refuse to sign up or were missed. But unfortunately, uh, despite the fact that we have a very clear family history going back past uh, the Trail of Tears, we're not on the Dawes Rolls. So because of that, I can't formally be a citizen of the nation until we do a lot of genealogical work to find out if one of the relatives got on the Dawes Rolls and then tracing a path back for saying, well, my mother's mother and my dad's mother and his mother and her mother and his father and, you know, tracing and then going to, oh, well, their brother did this and their sister did that and trying to trace it back. So it's a very complicated issue, unfortunately. But that is, as far as me saying I'm affiliated with them, that's the folks I have the most contact with. That's where my family traces it back to that my direct ancestors were relocated to Oklahoma during the Trail of Tears, and that's that's where I can come from. I don't feel much affinity for the Eastern Band uh, who stuck behind and uh, is a whole history unto itself. But that one particular situation, that's what it looks like. And again, it's different for every single tribe, every single nation does it differently there's there's no one answer when it comes to any of this it sounds like the white settlement of of the native american population extended beyond even taking land and even into infecting how tribes define themselves because it seems to me that the dawes rolls sound like a tool of imperial control of this marginalized group but likewise blood quantum itself, the notion that having X percent of 
you know, native heritage or native DNA defines someone as native, that itself seems like an idea that's rooted in the white supremacist idea that the sort of idea of one drop of blood makes you something. Absolutely. Blood quantums are very much an imperialist tool, uh, very much rooted in this southern notion of exactly that, the one drop rule that, you know, even just one drop of non-white blood uh, was enough to qualify somebody as not white. And unfortunately, tribes were either coerced into doing this or leading individuals of those tribes were bribed into doing it or just did it on their own to profit from it, essentially. That, uh, unfortunately, human greed knows no ethnicity and uh, there is a lot of backhanded deals and backroom deals that were made with these tribes to get them to do what the uh, settler government wanted to do and some of them went along with it willingly and those who did not uh, usually found themselves being made to do it at the end of a gun and that's that's how that worked out similarly you know the Dawes Rolls and other tribes have uh, similar things uh, pretty much all the tribes that were resettled into Oklahoma were put under the institution of the Dawes Rolls, and then uh, some tribes on the Northwest, I believe, also had a similar system uh, implemented when their reservation systems were created and various things that went on with that, all of which were terrible to say the least. But unfortunately, most of the native governments and native systems and just native bureaucracy that we see in modern-day America are based on these historical institutions that were used repeatedly to take more and more and more land and sovereignty and rights away from the native populations and just time and time again stripped more and more of everything that made them who they were, made them their nations, their cultures, their societies, or just taken away slowly. And, you know, the reason I bring up the Dawes Rolls uh, so much that even though it is quote-unquote a better system than blood quantum it unfortunately there were a lot of people who did not sign on to the roles and for good reason that those roles were then used uh, by the federal government to begin the institution of uh, the quote-unquote indian boarding schools and this was a very violent institution where native children were taken away from their parents it didn't matter if you know you were one of the so-called five civilized tribes, uh, the Cherokee being one of those tribes that were described by the Founding Fathers as being civilized in the eyes of European settlers, uh, that you just you had your children taken away from you, they went to a boarding school, uh, usually of white evangelical teachers, and it was a very violent institution that not only the violence of ripping children away from their families, but also that they were forcibly made to integrate into European society. Uh, children had lie put on their tongues if they spoke their native language, uh, literally invoking corporal punishment to destroy somebody's culture. And that's why we see so much of the trauma in the modern-day uh, native societies and in modern-day America. It was this sort of institution that was working uh, at some scale to enact genocide against these dozens to hundreds of different people groups that there are cultures that we will never recover because many of these cultures were based in oral histories and 
there's no stronger way to destroy an oral history than literally putting a chemical agent on somebody's tongue to keep them from speaking. I mean, that's that's about as plain as day as you can get, and that's what happened, was people were, as children, removed from their cultures and societies, and just by that fact, now that's stuff we'll never be able to recover because there is no written record of it that is just truly and forever gone do you see a path forward for rebuilding tribal identities and rebuilding these people groups outside of the structures imposed on them by the subtler government absolutely i think that i don't agree with everything the lumbee are doing but i very much stand in support of the lumbee as a nation that uh, for those who are unaware, the Lumbee are a people group that is kind of in that lower Appalachia area, so it's, it's hard to put geographic boundaries on these things because, again, history, but kind of in the Georgia, Tennessee, Kentucky, you know, that Appalachia, Smoky Mountain region, similar region to where the Cherokee came from kind of focused in that area and they are actually near the eastern band of the Cherokee where they currently uh, are recognized uh, the eastern band and so the Lumbee are a very diverse people group and this this is something that kind of throws a wrench into popular culture's conceptions of native peoples that the Lumbee are a native people but they are not what people think when they think of native people the Lumbee uh, were a confederation of different tribes and nations and groups that came together and were very, very diverse. They had uh, individuals that came from all around the region, as well as uh, tribes that migrated into the region. Uh, they, they were a confederacy-style government. Uh, they were bound together via many different subgroups. And when... Uh, Europeans began uh, their colonization efforts of North America. Uh, they were very accepting to folks like indentured servants or just, you know, poor Europeans who fled from the European settlements into the wilderness. Uh, they were very accepting of Europeans who fled and integrated into the tribe. They were very accepting of uh, escaped slaves who fled and integrated into the tribe. They were, they were a very accepting group. And because of this, they are a very mixed group. They have no strong, quote-unquote, genetic makeup in any particular direction. They have, you know, a lot of different genetics in their group. And so this traditional blood quantum way of thinking of race and ethnicity fails for the Lumbee because the Lumbee are not a single ethnic group. It's, it's honestly like how in modern-day America, uh, you can't just uh, take an American and say, well, an American is this particular race or ethnicity because uh, America has a lot of different races and ethnicities in its makeup. In a similar way, the Lumbee have a lot of different folks that are part of them, that continue to be part of them, and they are bound together by a single cultural identity. And that is, that is the important emphasis to make on a lot of different Native issues, is that it is bound together, these groups are bound together by culture. Culture is what ultimately ties folks together. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, people. It doesn't matter if Elizabeth Warren is 164th <laughs> Native American if she doesn't have any tie or relation to actual Native culture. 
And the sad thing about that is I think it's actually one 254th. It's, it's even less than 64th, but, uh, but that's, that's unfortunately when we make that st- sort of statement, that's finding ourselves tied into exactly that sort of, uh, that sort of mentality. But even just me standing here making that, that statement is falling victim to that sort of mentality. And, and yes, it does not matter that you know, even if Elizabeth Warren is 164 for whatever, an example I really like to bring up, not you know, for love of the situation, it's a terrible situation, but the baby Veronica uh, fiasco that happened, I want to say 2010, 2011, somewhere in there, that you had Dustin Brown, uh, a Cherokee man, and then he was uh, dating a Hispanic woman, and there was a big custody battle around their child, and the child was, I think, going off of the Quantum's, you know, free 30 seconds a Cherokee or such, but I would consider that child 100% a Cherokee because uh, the child was born in the Cherokee culture, was supposed to be raised in the Cherokee culture. The, the Cherokee Nation Oklahoma tried to raise that child. Uh, she was raised with her grandmother for a little bit before her mother adopted her out to a white evangelical family, which unfortunately is something that continues on to this day is is this institution we don't have it quote-unquote sponsored by the government anymore Uh, that's not an official policy anymore but there's still evangelical adoption groups that will take native children from mothers and fathers who can't provide for them or don't see a way to provide for them and then they relocate them to white evangelical families and destroy the culture just another step at a time in that sort of situation, I think that's a perfect situation where it doesn't matter uh, the child's blood quantums. The blood quantums are irrelevant. Uh, the child was born to a culture and had no agency or prerogative in even being able to choose the culture that she would be raised under. And because she's being stripped away from her native culture and being put into another culture, it's much easier, I would go ahead and say, that... If you are raised in a native culture and then you turn 18 and you can make decisions for yourself and you say, well, I don't like this culture anymore. I don't I don't agree with the culture. I want to go do something else. That's your prerogative at that point. But it's immensely harder uh, for that child who is going to be raised in this evangelical culture to then be brought up in evangelical white culture. And then one day, if she doesn't agree with that culture, to come back to the tribe and get that culture again. That's there's two very different power dynamics here, and and I think that's something that people sometimes often miss with that as well. But getting back to the Lumbee, I find the Lumbee interesting because they don't have you know this institution of blood quantum's because they are a very diverse group of people. They have historically been discriminated against by both native communities and settler communities. That they've they've faced extreme prejudice, especially that uh, in the South, they were actually considered to be a a black community. So they weren't even technically considered natives at all uh, in many parts of the South. And going into the modern day, as they struggle for federal recognition that was denied to them because the federal government came in and said, no, you are not native enough. And using absolutely stupid techniques to do this as well, that this is this is the end result of blood quantums. Uh, back in the early 1900s, they couldn't test your blood. So what did they do? They 
uh, got some experts, uh, some human uh, like anthropology experts or whatever they're called, and they came in and they're uh, looking at a selection of Lumbi and the, one of the tests they literally used to test if you were, uh, had enough native blood was they sharpened a pencil and they ran a pencil for your hair. And if the point of the pencil got stuck on your hair, then you weren't native enough because your hair was supposed to be straight and flowing. So curled hair, if it got stuck on a pencil tip, then you didn't have enough native blood. That was one of the literal that's, institutional techniques used. That's the most bullcrap scientific racism nonsense I've ever heard. And it was... I mean, were they measuring people's skulls? They also did that, because that was all the hotness back then, was a skull measurement and measuring your eyes. Uh, did your eyes widen or contract enough? The height of your cheekbones. Uh, people have told me I have Cherokee cheekbones. I'm still not sure what a Cherokee cheekbone is, because I've met plenty of Cherokee people who don't have quote-unquote Cherokee cheekbones, but eh, I don't know. It's... You get into some really weird pseudo-scientific racist bullshit when it comes to these sort of things, and that's exactly what was used against the Lumbee uh, back then, and they were denied recognition, they didn't get any federal benefits, and they have been a people without recognition for centuries now. But into the modern day, as they struggle and agitate for recognition, now they face not only the federal government denying them, but they also face what should be their own comrades in arms uh, denying them as well, that the Eastern Band of the Cherokee have lobbied the Bureau of Indian Affairs not to recognize the Lumbee. Because if the Lumbee were recognized, the Lumbee would have land allotted to them, they'd have a jurisdiction, and then they could build a casino. And this is another whole issue that we don't have time to get into, but suffice to say, casino revenue very important for a lot of natives, for a lot of tribes and nations and jurisdictions that they need that revenue. The Lumbee, their current leadership, would really love it if they could build a casino and get some casino revenue to help their people. But the Eastern Band of the Cherokee's leadership don't want that to happen because they have a casino nearby as well, and that could cut into their profits. And this is something where the left has to be able to step in and realize that much of current native governments... Uh, are built upon an institution forced upon them by settlers, by colonialist governments, that I really sincerely doubt the Cherokee want to be living off of casino revenue. I don't think that's what anyone wants, but because of centuries of just having their culture destroyed, their people separated by force, of being forced to beg for scraps, that is what it's come to. And... Because of that, now there is a capitalist incentive to push those that you should be helping aside and say, no, we can't let you be recognized because you might cut into our profits. And that's a really fucked up situation to be in. But that's the situation we find ourselves in now that a tribe that should, by all rights, have recognition, be an own, its own nation, is having those rights and having those privileges pushed away and frustrated against by folks that should be sympathetic to their cause. So at this point, so much of the, you know, official recognized structure of Native American tribes and people groups is so bound up in the white, in the white supremacist settler capitalist system that two tribes of people who should be at 
you know, on the same side in resisting the white settler project are instead forced to squabble over recognition because of the possibility of losing revenue. It seems intuitively obvious to me that there's no way to solve this issue under capitalism because it's a system that forces these groups to compete with each other. And if people are competing, then they can't have solidarity with each other and they can't unite and fight back against the forces that oppress them. So if we were to look at this in a socialist context, what could be done to grant some degree of justice and some degree of reparations to these tribes that have been so demolished by the white settler colonialist genocidal projects and the racist capitalist system that uh, they're forced to participate within today? And this is the problem that I have a lot of disagreements with folks on the left about, and the issue is that I don't have a good answer for this because I can only speak from my own personal experience and my own personal experience is not at all capable of approaching the scope of this issue that besides my own you know ancestral ties and what my family has taught me and you know my father taught me the culture and his mother taught him the culture and this being passed down and each of those experiences affecting each of them at each level of the playing field the problem is that even if i could you know to find a way to you know get I, I figure out the dolls roles i figure out all the family connections and then i become a citizen of the cherokee nation and you know work my way up the political scheme and get elected principal chief i could maybe speak for the cherokee nation at that point after having popular sovereignty granted to me to be, be able to speak for people but the problem is i'd only be able to speak for those people and uh, it's a similar situation for the hundreds and hundreds of tribes that are just you know just the ones that are recognized in some fashion never minding the tribes that no longer exist never mind the nations that were wiped off the face of the earth by disease and war there are entire nations that don't exist in any fashion in the modern day because they were killed uh, via either disease via their wars of extermination via internal squabbles via famine uh, all of these things have contributed to having whole nations just wiped out uh, with no survivors no remnants how does one make reparations for something that doesn't even exist anymore and that's a big problem and then having you know, what what people who do exist people we can help in the modern day well unfortunately the Seminoles down in Florida, by force of necessity, they are in the same people ethnic group as the Blackfeet or the Blackfoot tribe in Washington state. But they are very much distinct and different. They have very different cultures. They have very different governments. They are separated geographically by more than what the Irish are separated from the Kurds uh, going from Ireland to Turkey. There is a greater geographical separation going from one side of North America to the other. And that's before we even get into things like the Alaskan nations that are very much a completely different subject in a lot of ways. That they have a many different issues that are faced similar uh, to what are in the lower 48, but very much different issues, very much isolated, uh, even amongst uh, Native American groups alaskan native women still suffer the highest rate of sexual assault 
uh, and rape in and Alaska. Let's not forget, and let's not forget the uh, Canadian indigenous populations as well. Absolutely, which still are the which are still the target of ongoing genocidal projects. Until even very recently in history, many indigenous women in Canada were sterilized as a matter of routine to prevent the uh, population from growing, a genocidal project to stamp them out. Let's let's not let the Canadians off the hook here either. Oh, absolutely. Canadians have a lot to answer to as well. And I, I don't talk about uh, Canadian indigenous peoples as much because, again, my personal experiences as an American, I can't. I can read about, you know, what's been going on in Canada. I have enough degrees of separation from it, though, that I don't always feel the best situated to be able to talk on those issues. But yes, absolutely. That of course there is, there is no nation, and I don't care what people say about whichever one of their favorite nations exists on the Americas. But there is no nation today in Amer- the Americas, be it North America or South America, that has not until very recently uh, committed atrocities against its native populations, even in countries that have turned it around in a way and have tried to make amends. Many of them still continue to make the same very awful decisions uh, going into the modern day. And yes, getting into South America as well, there's a lot, lot to deal with there and... It, it becomes such a mind-boggling project that this is kind of where I do feel like the left breaks down because there is so many different levels here. There is uh, the people in America, and there is the people in the lower 48. There are people in Alaska. There are people in Hawaii. The struggles of the native Hawaiians, very different to maybe, you know, the struggles of people in the Cherokee Nation. Again, similar they were both conquered by colonial states, but there is a there is a big degree of separation in cultural and political and economic issues that is going to look different everywhere. And that's the thing that we keep on breaking this down. And even if we restrict ourselves to the lower 48 and we look at the issues that we have here, well, what what does reparations look like for the left? And one of the things that really kills me is that uh, folks will go out and say, well, we just give all the land back. And and I understand when native leftists say this, and I'm not saying this to besmirch or disparage any native leftist who says this because I understand they are coming from a different perspective, and I understand when they're saying that. But there is still nuance here, and I especially get annoyed when somebody completely removed from this topic just says, well, you know, we'll just give them land back. Because, unfortunately, uh, if you're just giving land, all the land back, well, first of all, there's not going to be an America after that. There's, this is all settled land. That's, uh, is all the European population of America just going to go back across the ocean and go back to Europe, uh, go back to Africa, go back to, the, to Asia? Like, and, I, and I also, when I say that, I also understand, yes, there's, then there's the intersection with the african-american population american how does this play into that because they were brought over here forcibly uh, forcibly resettled as well under the brutal institution of slavery so how does that interact do uh, because you know in the past there have been considerations of historical projects uh, to create jurisdictions where african-american minority groups have 
a place uh, that they have control over and how does that interact with the native struggle for recognition and jurisdiction is it going there's there's a lot of different intersections that come up here and i'm not qualified to get into all of those intersections but what i can say is that just saying we'll give back the land and then leaving it there that is not a solution that is just taking an easy route and that is not actually considering the hard questions here because then the question becomes well, who who has the land uh, when you give when you say give back the land do all the Cherokee get back their land in lower Appalachia uh, does the Cherokee get their old territory back and then who gets that territory is it the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma are they going to uproot themselves from Oklahoma and go back to North Carolina is that where they're going to go or do they merge with the Eastern Band do the two bands of Cherokee reunite together because I can say that that's going to cause a lot of issues because there's a uh, 150-year-old beef plus going on between the two bands right now, and that's not going to get resolved anytime soon. So are you going to force two different people groups now together and say, okay, here's your old land, take care of it? And beyond that, 500, at least 500 different recognized tribes uh, throughout the United States without even beginning to touch upon, yes, other nations, Canada, Mexico, uh, all of South America. So where do you begin drawing borders and jurisdictions? Are we going to sit down to the map and play the British, making mandates and provinces? Because we know how that ended up last time. Are you going to, you know, force tribes that have been separated back together? Are you going to make a universal Native American nation? Are you just going to say, well... You know, this is too difficult. We're just going to say all this land here is under native jurisdiction and everyone who's native, they just get to come and enjoy and live under this government because that's also going to cause issues, unfortunately. Uh, it's not a unified front that we're talking about here. And that is the big problem. This is a continent scale issue. There are almost a hundred million people living here before European settlers came. Uh, to give perspective, the current population of America is inching towards 400 million. Uh, I think it's closer to 350 million. And of North America or the United States? Of the United States. Uh, 320 million. Yeah. So almost a third of the modern population is what some folks estimate uh, the Native American population was before the arrival of European settlers. And we can't begin to comprehend the scale of devastation that was taken against it. Because devastation isn't even the correct word. Devastation derives from the idea that 10%, a devastated city, has lost 10% of its population. That's where the word derives from. This is not 10% of the population that was wiped out. It was over 90% of the population. Imagine going to America now and wiping out 90% of the population, and then 400 years later asking, well, how are we going to deal with this? That's the situation we're in. And the answers I see on the left are unfortunately just so often easy solutions that aren't solutions at all. And again, I don't like talking about it a lot of times because I don't have a good answer. I don't have a good answer to what is the appropriate solution here because I can't make that decision. It's going to be a decision that has to be made on a group level. There is going to be probably decades, perhaps even generations of discussion after what happens, or what what 
will it take to make the errors of the past go away? And the answer is they'll never go away. They can only be smoothed over. But again, there are nations that no longer exist. There are peoples who have been wiped out in their entirety. You can't make reparations for that. You can try to make reparations to the folks living in now, but reparations for every single group and in some ways every single individual is going to look different because how do you quantitate the loss of culture and society and the fact that many of these nations were nations in their own right, built cities, had you know what we'd call the pillars of civilization, and given another hundred years could have been on an equal footing with European invaders. How do you take away from the fact that for 400 years now, hundreds of civilizations were stunted and never got a chance to actually flourish and develop up the tech tree? I don't have the answer to that, but I can say that the left nings to grapple with the fact that there is no easy answer to this and that when discussing native reparations, there has to be a moment to pause and realize that native reparations means talking about reparations with over 500 different sovereign groups that all have their own nings and necessities. Like reparations would probably look very different for the Cherokee than they would for the Lakota, and that would look very different than reparations for the Lumbi or for the Tongva. So I guess the main question then is, what can the left do to help native communities in terms of community defense, in terms of preventing additional damage to these communities to prevent them from losing what they do have? What can we do to support some form of rest of restorative justice under the current capitalist system and in our struggles for building a socialist system in the aftermath? What sort of things could be pursued, do you think? I think for self-defense, uh, purposes for community defense purposes a big thing is recognizing native sovereignty re- helping not only you know physically uh, when there are protests and demonstrations helping provide physical security for folks that are much more likely to be targeted and beyond that helping to agitate for the recognition of sovereignty, helping to agitate for against measures brought on by the federal and state and local governments that continue to strip tribal sovereignty away. Things like criminal law that shields folks who commit crimes on native land and then cross the border real fast and then the state police refuse to do anything about it because they say, well, it was committed on native land, so we're not going to do anything about it, even though they have the authority to do something about it. They refuse, but will not refuse to intrude on native land and conduct their business on native land in the reverse. Agitating against things like that, talking to your representatives and making it clear that no, that's not appropriate. So often it's just, it's just about providing people a platform. Unfortunately, a lot of native communities don't have a platform. They are very small and politically are considered very insignificant. They don't have a lot of political clout, and it makes it very difficult for them to be able to do much in terms of agitating on behalf of themselves or, as often is demanded, agitating for many other tribes. Uh, The Cherokee Nation being one of the stronger and wealthier native nations, comparatively speaking, does often take on 
smaller tribes as cases to be able to take them to the attention of the government and to be able to lobby on their behalf. So I think as far as in the modern day, being aware of it is a big issue. I feel like people aren't aware of it oftentimes. Working with native groups, asking them, what do you need help with? What do you, what needs to be done? Providing some time and resources to be able to do that. As, you know, lukewarm leftism takes on new power in America, of holding leftist politicians to account and making sure that they don't forget all these disenfranchised groups that they promised to protect and making sure that if we get this Green New Deal pushed through Congress, that this Green New Deal doesn't mean what's happened in many other states where, yeah, you just built a bunch of windmills, but you did it by appropriating native land. Uh, there have been states that have done green energy initiatives and have just, because they don't want to pay farmers for it, they'll appropriate what is often valued as, you know, lesser uh, native land, and they'll just eminent domain that because it's got a lower property value and build their sore arrays and windmills there. And it's like, well, you got part of it right, and then you fell on the last hurdle and slid all the way back because, congratulations, we have some green power now, but uh, you did it by stealing people's land. Yeah. Okay. So thank you for coming on and talking about this issue. I think this is something that often doesn't get enough attention in leftist circles or often the attention that it does get is temporary or overly simplified, as you've mentioned. Uh, what are some resources that people can look into for how they can find out more about Native struggles and possibly connect with tribes in their region to offer support? So I would recommend folks go to, I believe it's the Indigenous Anarchist Federation, uh, IAF. Uh, they're a relatively big group on the left for Native rights. Uh, you can get in contact with them via multiple outlets. They're pretty much everywhere on social media, and I think they got their own website now. That's the main leftist group I know of that works nationally. Otherwise, it is a lot of local measures. Honestly, sometimes your best bet is to go to like a local state university or something, that they'll usually have some professors there that are kind of either in charge or have taken it upon themselves to collect information on local tribes. And usually they have some resources as far as going to those local governments. I will say that usually those local governments are not leftist in nature. Sometimes they can be very reactionary, but they are a good stepping stone to being able to get into, you know, related groups and other organizations and entities that are specifically there for that tribe because it is, unfortunately, there is not a lot of national level uh, native issue groups right now and that is again because there's so many different diverse groups all over the nation and it's kind of hard to speak for them all and have the same things for each of them so you can look at your local resources that sometimes you can even go to like the bureau of indian affairs website and take a look on their website to see any tribes that might be near you Great. Thank you once again for coming on. And uh, I guess if there's anything else you'd like to say to the audience before you sign off? Uh, I don't got too much. If if you want to hear me rant about these things every now and then, I am still on Twitter at Humvadev. And I do, I do go on occasional Twitter rants about these particular things. 
or if you just want to hit me up with particular questions. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. And uh, thank you for all you do with, with your organizing for the SRA. Uh, with that, I think we'll sign off for the night. Right. Solidarity, comrades. See y'all.